Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Middle East on the brink. Hundreds of people are reportedly killed in an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Both sides blame each other for the strike. Uh, very worrying reports, very concerning reports. Uh, we don't have the full information yet. It comes as US President Joe Biden heads to Israel for a landmark visit tomorrow while the death toll in the region rises. And later, we debate the possible liberalisation of Ireland's drugs laws and discuss the scale of the drug issue here. But I am surprised at the level of need and the, and the, and the, oh, I suppose the tragedy of it all. Tonight, the Palestinian Health Ministry says an Israeli airstrike on a hospital in Gaza has claimed several hundred lives. However, the Israeli military has blamed a rocket misfired by the Islamic Jihad group in Gaza for this deadly incident. Israeli airstrikes have pounded the area since Hamas militants carried out their atrocity in southern Israel more than a week ago. U.S. President Joe Biden is leaving the U.S. this evening for this landmark visit to Israel, but he will also meet Palestinian leaders while he's in the region. The Taoiseach spoke to the media tonight after an EU leaders' meeting and reacted to this breaking news from Gaza about the deaths in the hospital. Yeah, I've heard some initial reports of a... um of a strike on a hospital in Gaza. Uh, very worrying reports, very concerning reports. Uh, we don't have the full information yet, um, but I think it emphasises uh, very much uh, our view that uh, civilian infrastructure should not be targeted. Um, and also, um, there is evidence that Hamas uses civilian infrastructure uh, as a cover for its operations, um, but that doesn't justify um, operations that may uh, cause the deaths of hundreds of civilians. And we will be going to Tel Aviv to get the very latest on that airstrike, on that hospital shortly. But first, I am joined by Euronews Europe correspondent Shona Murray for more on that EU summit, which has been discussing the war in the Middle East. You're very welcome to the programme, Shona. Any reaction at all to that breaking news of an explosion at a hospital in Gaza this evening? Well, EU leaders, when they met today, they weren't aware of the strike. Uh, but after a Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, which represents the member states, did give a press conference where he said he wanted to express his sorrow at the news that he'd heard that an Israeli bomb had killed several hundred people. Or there were many, many casualties. Um, he said he didn't know the details. Obviously, he wasn't going to condemn it as a war crime per se. But um, obviously, people are devastated at something so colossal uh, when for the past 10 days or so, Everybody has been warning about excessive use of force and the need 
for international humanitarian law, which, which protects civilians and minimises uh, civilian deaths in an armed conflict. And we know European leaders met today virtually and we know there has been mixed messaging and some infighting in Europe about their response to this conflict in Israel and Gaza. What was the purpose of the meeting today? And at the end of it, can you say with confidence that the EU is going to present a more united front, Shona? So that is the point of the meeting. It was to draw a line under what has been a really a da very damaging week for the European Union at the start of this massacre from Hamas, where everybody was in unison expressing solidarity and, and sympathy with Israelis uh, who are still, obviously, 200 of them are still missing, still under hostage uh, from Hamas. But that there was no obligation for Israel to respect international humanitarian law. When we know there has been so many cycles of violence in Gaza where Israel is being accused of disproportionate use of force, where thousands of civilians were being killed. And when Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, went to visit Israel, of course, she was visiting the families of those who had been murdered by Hamas. But at the same time, children were being killed Civilians were being killed by uh, the Israeli Defence Forces. And at the same time, the Israeli government was saying that they had a full siege on Gaza, no water, no fuel, no gas, no electricity, no food, which is contra in contravention to the Geneva Conventions because it's a collective punishment. And uh, we also heard the Defence Minister of Israel saying uh, no damage was the priority rather than accuracy. And Ursula von der Leyen did not say that Israel had to abide by international law when at the same time, for two years, rightfully, the EU has been condemning Russia for engaging in grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, for starving people, for collective punishment of uh, Ukrainians. So it seemed like there was a double standard. And there's been so many complaints from EU partners around the world, the Global South, the African Union, the United Nations, saying, well, why aren't you upholding international law at this point? So the point of the meeting today was that there would be a unison, a one voice to say IHL, international humanitarian law, is important and we defend Israel's right to defend itself. All right, uh, Shona Murray, we're going to have to leave that there for now, but thank you for bringing us that update. Uh, I'm joined here in studio by senior lecturer Harry Brown from the Technological University of Dublin and by Tabalia Sellier, assistant professor at the UCD School of Politics and International Relations. I want to come to you first, um, Tobias. Look, this is catastrophic, um, this hospital. I don't know if anybody's seen any of the footage of the chaos that has ensued. Um, and it's already a pretty dire situation in Gaza. What do you make of, I suppose, the Israeli response um, that this isn't their responsibility, this is not something that they can um, take ownership of? It's very hard to say because we obviously don't know what, what happened. So, I mean, it's, so the Israelis may be right, they, they may not be right. I, I'm pretty sure that the truth will come out. I, I, I think one thing in Israel is it is a democracy and if things like that happen, eventually they do tend to come out. So I think we will know quite soon what happened. But it's very, I mean, nobody can say at the moment because we just don't know what happened. Does this attack in any way change the focus and the nature of Joe Biden's visit tomorrow, do you think? It will put some additional pressure on Biden to push the Israelis towards moderation. Uh, the Biden administration has been trying to do this for the past couple of days. Blinken has been, his, his, his Secretary of State has been in the Middle East. He has been quite in, initially very discreetly and then increasingly vociferously, he has called on Israel to respect humanitarian law, to respect the Geneva Convention, to let humanitarian aid go in. The Americans are trying very hard to broker an opening of the border with Egypt, between Gaza and Egypt, to let humanitarian material go in, but also to let foreigners exit 
Gaza. At the moment, nobody can leave Gaza, including foreign nationals. So I think Biden will push a little bit in that direction. That said, uh, is, Israel is one of the very few issues in the United States that enjoys very large bipartisan support. There's overwhelming support for Israel, both among Republicans and among Democrats and among the electorate, which makes it very unlikely, I think, that Biden will offer significant pushback. I, I think he will largely, he will display solidarity with Israel. He will declare that Israel will get any kind of aid it needs in its campaign and probably behind scenes he will push for moderation, but he will be a very strong defender of Israel. Is he the only person, Harry Brown, are the US the only people who can come into this and try and push Israel for some moderation, as Tobias says, when it comes to their response to the Hamas atrocities? It's just very hard to answer that in a way that gives the Americans any credit for what they've done. And I just want to also say, Tobias described Israel as a democracy. There are a lot of people been on the streets of Israel for the last several months saying that Israel is no longer a democracy. Well, Israelis on the streets of Israel for the last several months. Every international human rights organization has said that Israel practices apartheid. And at the moment, apartheid is the best case scenario for the actions of the Israeli government, because instead of apartheid, now we're getting eth ethnic cleansing and genocide. Okay, and so that, that is that something I suppose that Israel would absolutely deny that there is ethnic cleansing or an apartheid state um, in Gaza. That well, is tell Amnesty, say. tell Bet Salem in Israel, tell all, all the human rights, human rights watch, etc. Joe Biden has already licensed what Israel has done so far. Now, that even leaving aside what's happened at the, uh, at the hospital tonight, there's been twice as many children killed already in Gaza in the last 10 days as have died in the entire Russian war in Ukraine. Just in the last 10 days, 20, compared to 20 months of the Russian war. We've had Israel basically tell the population of Dublin, let's say, that they have to move to Bray and Greystones. And meanwhile, we're going to bomb the Stillorgan Road and we might bomb the Bray Promenade as well. So the scale of the crimes that have already been committed with Joe Biden saying, well, it's like the Holocaust, so they can really do whatever they want. Joe Biden has already given the license for what, what's happened so far so and for almost anything then? that might happen. What is in the, the purpose then and the logic for his visit? They have Anthony Blinken there. He has been crisscrossing the Middle East for the last couple of days. What do you think? They, don't, just they, clearly, they clearly don't want an Iranian involvement in the war. They don't want a Hezbollah and Lebanese involvement in the war. They don't want a Syrian involvement in the war. They've moved military assets to the Eastern Mediterranean. I think there's clearly a desire not to see a wider war. And I think that Biden wouldn't be coming if he didn't think he was going to get some humanitarian band-aid stuck on the situation tomorrow, that they're going to announce some kind of aid corridor into uh, Gaza, or, I mean, what he would really like, but what I think Palestinians and Egyptians will resist, is some kind of opening to allow people, Palestinians from Gaza, to be driven further from their land. Because remember, they Egypt. come into Egypt. Remember, these are, these, are, these are not Gazans. These are people who come from all over historic Palestine. Uh, and they've been driven into Gaza, and now the uh, intent is to drive them further. Okay, we did hear the Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking today about 2,000 American military troops being put on a prepare to deploy order for the Middle East. What is the purpose of that, do you think, Tobias? I don't think the Americans really anticipate that there will be uh, you know, active American troop involvement in the conflict. I think it's a symbolic gesture, largely. Again, it is to display solidarity with Israel. It's also to put others on guard, Iran in particular. I think this sort of 
fear in the background is that Iran could somehow get involved in that more actively and that it could then somehow widen into a wider regional conflict. I don't think that's very likely, but that's certainly something that's on, in, on the mind of the Americans, and I think that might in part be driving it. Also, I think what the Americans are trying to do, they're trying to, like, the fear is also now in, in the American administration that this reconciliation between Israel and the so-called moderate Arab states, so the, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and so on, that that could be in danger. So I think the Americans are trying very hard to, to ensure that that doesn't happen, try to, uh, try to appease some of the... Also Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia now has broken off its, its negotiation of, uh, with Israel in, uh, aimed at uh, re-establishing di diplomatic relations. I think the that, Americans that are, deal is dead in the water. Yeah, although I think the Americans are keen to kind of get it going or to revive it at some point. So this is also what Blinken... Blinken went to Saudi Arabia as well, and this is what he was trying to do. No, I think in the overall scheme of things, I don't think Israel is really going to be moved by that either way. I think the only country that Israel really listens to right now is the United States, and, 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 and even there, uh, there's only so much the US can do. In terms of what the Europeans say, uh, Israel doesn't care. What von der Leyen says, Israel doesn't particularly care, nor does it care what any of the Arab states say. So, 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 so diplomacy coming from the EU or the European Council leaders meeting today, or pressure coming from the UK or any of those other Arab states, it's a deaf ear, is it, uh, Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. But Israel, at the same time, Israel is, I think, going through a profound crisis. Now, I've taken issue with Tobias's description of Israel as a democracy, but it is a place that is riven by a lot of conflict within Jewish-Israeli society. It suffered a major military disastrous defeat last week. It's something we've rightly been looking at the terrible humanitarian consequences of the attacks by Hamas in Israel. But it was a military defeat. And it was a military defeat that was happened partly because, as Israelis see it, the troops had their eye in, on the West Bank, that uh, soldiers had been moved to the West Bank to defend settlers who are killing Palestinians by the dozen, by the way, even in the last few days there. So Israel... They feel that, and, and because of that defeat, their civilians were put at, uh, at greater risk. There's a real, uh, Netanyahu is widely hated already in Israeli society. I think that, that what's going to happen here is not going to come from Joe Biden. It's not going to come from Ursula von der Leyen. Um, if there's going to be a solution, it's probably going to come from within Israeli society. It's going to have to. Um, Tobias, in terms of this ground offensive, which we have heard about now, you know, since that attack, that awful attack on October 7th, um, it hasn't happened yet. Why do you think that is? And, and where do you think Israel's military strategy is at this point? I suspect it's in part simply because Israel doesn't have very good intelligence about Hamas. Clearly, if they had good intelligence, this wouldn't have happened in the first, in the first place. place. And, and, it, and Netanyahu knows that once this quiets down a bit, he will have a lot of explaining to do in terms of why they didn't anticipate that. Now, it may well just be so Hamas is a very, very small place that's very, very densely populated. Hamas is very likely to be everywhere. So if the Israelis are going to go after Hamas, they need pretty good intelligence to know where they are. Uh, now, if it was Israel which bombed these hospitals, that's not a very good, good beginning by any means, because it shows that they clearly don't know where these things are. And so I would imagine that that's part of it. Part of it may also be because the Americans pushing in the background for restraint. But again, I think that ground offensive will. Is, is, it looks to me very likely that that will happen. And unfortunately, I think there will be... There was a point made by our Taoiseach there where he said Hamas are known to use hospitals, which was targeted in this case, um, as opposed to give them almost cover from Israeli strikes. Do you accept that as the case? Yes, they have done that in the past. They have used schools and they have used hospitals. 
Although it's important to point out that doesn't give carte blanche to Israel to then attack those places. And I don't think anybody thinks it does. Humanitarian law is very clear. You cannot, even if that happens, you that that is not justified reason for attacking those places. No, because so, we know innocent civilians, as has happened this evening, uh, are killed. Uh, in terms of Hezbollah in all of this, their, their leaders have been quite quiet, haven't they? They have. Harry yeah. Brown, why is that? And what do you think their position, their thinking and their strategy is going to be uh, over the next days and weeks? It's very hard to know. I mean, the, the Hezbollah leadership, as you say, has been, has been quiet. In this, there has been some fighting. There have been some Hezbollah uh, people killed uh, at the uh, northern Israeli border. But I think that, you know, Hezbollah, um, for all the talk that Hezbollah is part of this sort of coordinated Iranian Hamas Hezbollah axis, there hasn't really been a, a demonstration of that. The events tonight put things in a different light. There's already been, it looks like, rioting in the, in the West Bank in relation to this, attacking the Israeli embassy in Amman in Jordan uh, uh, this evening as well. So I think, you know, there's a lot that we still don't know what's going to happen yet. And the, 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 the way that Israel chooses to attack Gaza, because clearly there will be some form of attack, may also have a, a bearing on this. Uh, there's been some suggestions that it will be done with very heavy bombing campaign rather than a full ground assault. Okay, just very briefly, um, why has the Israeli Air Force been uh, bombing the Damascus airport. What is the link there, Tobias? I do not only answer to that. I, I would suspect that Israel thinks that, again, that Syria offers that there's some sort of aid coming from Syria to Hamas now. What kind of intelligence they have, if it's good intelligence or not, I have no idea. Just one very small thing, I think an important factor, which we haven't talked about, are the hostages. Yeah. Many yeah. of those hostages are by nationals, and there is pressure from other countries on Israel, because Hamas said that they will kill those hostages of Israel attacks, and I think there is pressure from abroad, also from the Americans, to ensure that... Because there are U.S. hostages there, too. It's a very good point, because that's part of the tension in Israeli society is about the hostages as well. And hostages have been speaking out on both sides, as it were. Hostage families have been speaking out. And uh, there's been a great deal of anger churned up by that as well. It's a very terrible time. In condemnation of that. All right, look, I just want to go live to Israel, where I'm joined by news correspondent Ross Cullen in Tel Aviv for the very latest on that attack on a hospital in Gaza. What more do we know about what happened and how many people have been killed and injured, Ross? Akira, there's claim and counterclaim this evening after that rocket strike on the Al-Atli Arab Hospital in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli Defense Forces are saying that it was Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They are a smaller group, sometimes uh, an ally, sometimes a rival of Hamas. They are a smaller militant group also based in the Gaza Strip, which also fire rockets regularly towards Israel. Uh, The uh, authorities in the Gaza Strip were saying that it was an Israeli airstrike that uh, hit the hospital at the moment they're looking online it is hard to discern exactly uh, which claim is correct Akira but what I can tell you is that there are very bloody videos online as well and what is to be sure is that there are appearing to be hundreds of fatalities uh, real chaos in the aftermath of that rocket strike on the hospital in Gaza people rushing to try to take the injured to uh, the nearest next available 
open a hospital, people rushing to try to um, put the people who lost their lives in uh, body bags, but there is a shortage of those uh, in the Gaza Strip at the moment. But what we do know is that there have been immediate uh, ramifications across the Middle East. There are protests this evening in Beirut, in Lebanon, in Amman, in Jordan, in the West Bank uh, already. And we know that the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, has cancelled his planned meeting with US President Joe Biden. Um, the figure that you were putting there, um, somewhere maybe between 300, 500, perhaps even 800 um, people who would have been killed. Many of those would have been in the hospital seeking treatment. But thousands of people are sheltering in these hospitals too because they perceive them as potentially being one of the safer areas in Gaza. Yeah, the number at the moment uh, is between 300 and 800 people who've lost their lives in an instance in that rocket strike on a hospital, uh, Kira, and there will be a full uh, death toll that will come out officially uh, once they manage to uh, take a tally of all the people who lost their lives. But we did have earlier on Tuesday also a, a strike on a UN school that was being used as a shelter. Some 4,000 people were using that as a shelter, and uh, there were also fatalities there after an Israeli air strike on the south of the Gaza Strip. So there is this, we've had 11 days now of this Israeli bombing campaign on the uh, Palestinian territory of the Gaza Strip, which came in response to Hamas's brutal attack here inside Israel on the 7th of October. And there is still this struggle underway to try to create the conditions that would allow a humanitarian corridor to be able to be created to allow aid in. Uh, the, the, the problems are as they were yesterday with a lack of blood donations, with a lack of trauma kits and with a lack of a suitable safe shelter space for people to be able to be protected from the cover of either rockets that have been misfired by Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad or the barrage of airstrikes that are coming from above from the Israel Air Force. Right, Ross, Colin, thank you for bringing us an update on that absolutely devastating uh, situation there this evening. My thanks to Ross, to Harry and to Tobias for joining us in studio. Next, former Mountjoy Governor Eddie Mullins on plans for a medically supervised drug injecting facility at Merchants Quay in Dublin. Do stay with us. 
next to a topic currently dominating the Citizens' Assembly, which could be set to recommend the liberalisation of our drug laws. Well, I spoke to former Mountjoy Governor Eddie Mullins, who's now the CEO at Merchants Key Ireland, about its experience of dealing with the consequences of drug use in the capital. Uh, Eddie, thank you for speaking to us on the Tonight Show. Uh, only six weeks in the role here. What's your impression? Oh, God. You know, I suppose... Well, thanks very much. Great to speak to you. Um, I think I'm kind of shocked in some respects. Um, I've always known, you know, people... I worked in prison service for 32 years. I would have, you know, encountered a lot of people who had a lot of difficult circumstances. But it's, it's multiplied so many times when you come out to the community and you see people who are really struggling uh, with addiction, with homelessness, with mental health issues. And it just... It has kind of surprised me. I didn't think I could be surprised... But I am surprised at the level of need and the and the and the I suppose the tragedy of it all when you look around it. You know, addiction affects everybody, but there's a significant number of young people, you know, who have their lives ahead of them who are completely embroiled in addiction, no way out of it, you know, probably reach the lowest point in their lives. And I've seen it, you know, so much and so many people that I've seen here I would have seen in prison as well. But yeah, it's just, it has shocked me the level of need that is out there and, and, and it's a very, very sad sight to see, you know. You said when you were governor of Mountjoy that addiction was a huge issue within the prison service. Does that mean that you recognise then a lot of the faces here at MQA? I do, you know, and I suppose I'm here six weeks and, you know, when you walk along the street and you meet people and, you know, they will refer to me as governor and I say, look, I'm not the governor anymore and we'll have a laugh about it. And But yeah, uh, you know, there's definitely a lot of similarities between the clientele who I would have encountered in Mountjoy and, and other prisons and here in Merchants Quay. And I suppose that's a sad reality of society when you look at uh, people who are on the margins, who are struggling, you know, the struggles don't end when they leave prison, they, they kind of carry on and, and in some cases I've seen people and I've said, my God, they look so much better when they were in Mountjoy, so they actually have deteriorated in terms of their presentation, in terms of their health, so yeah, there is a lot of similarities, absolutely, yeah. Could you summarise the drug situation in the capital right now? Well, it's very extensive, you know, um, um, uh, we would have had just under 13,000 individuals, people, would have visited Merchants Key in 2022. We're only one service provider. They didn't all visit Merchants Key because of addiction issues, but certainly a significant number of people would have delivered or would have visited because of addiction issues. So that would give you a, a kind of a, a sense of the scale of the problem. It's a very, very, very big problem. Um, I mean, we, we look around our streets and we see people smoking crack cocaine. Crack cocaine is a big issue at the moment. There's no question about that. We have the worry of fentanyl. So fentanyl, I'm, I'm, I'm reliably informed, is present in the north. We haven't seen many um, cases of it here. Our case workers would work closely with our drug users to, to, to kind of gather intelligence and information around the types of drugs they're using. But there's probably no doubt about it. As night follows day, fentanyl will probably become a problem in in Dublin and in other parts of the country, you know, in the not too distant future. And for you, one of the solutions is this medically supervised injection centre. It was given the green light uh, at Christmas. I know there were planning concerns. What's the delay now? So there has been a, quite a significant delay in relation to the planning application. And 
It's very understandable. You know, there's been a lot of objections from a variety of stakeholders about the idea of a medically supervised injection facility. I suppose the first thing I'll say is it will happen. So we have overcome uh, most of those objections and we are now in a phase where we are working to deliver the project. And we're working closely with the community and with people who have concerns and we're trying to allay those concerns and we're trying to work with them to, to I suppose, um, uh, ensure that the facility itself has a minimal impact on the local community. Because the real concern is, you know, will it be a centre for everybody to come to? Will you have an explosion in drug users in the community and all of that? And, and they're genuine fears and I can understand that. And I've engaged quite a bit over the last six weeks with stakeholders around those concerns. And while I can't give any guarantees, it, it, the facility itself will have a capacity so we won't be going beyond our capacity. We will also have a restricted number of opening hours. We're, we're looking at potentially 50 hours a week over a seven-day period. So that's the kind of, uh, I suppose, structure and setup for the facility. But be under no illusion, it will absolutely save lives. There is no question about that. The last data I, or the, um, uh, information I looked at was for 2020, where we had 409 overdose deaths in Ireland. Now 409 overdose deaths is over one a day. Many of those, not all, but many of those overdoses took place in, you know, in a, for the people who overdosed, it happened in isolated, undignified places, alleyways, you know, bed, um, uh, squats, whatever it might be, where a person died alone. So this facility will allow people to come in we have to be grown up, we have to be realistic about it. It will allow people to come in and inject in a safe facility and it will save lives because of that. Uh, you mentioned the injection centre, but then you said the biggest problems in the city now are crack cocaine and potentially fentanyl going forwards. They can't be used within that centre, so do we need to extend it? A facility for those users, is it? And no. is that a problem? Well, well, I suppose we, we have to start somewhere. So if we look back at the planning process for the for the um, uh, medically injured, MSIF as I call it, um, at that time that was the focus was very much on injecting heroin, and certainly drug use and drug trends change over time, and they have we know they have changed, but there is still a very significant proportion of people, drug users, who inject heroin. They may also take crack cocaine. I mean, Scotland, for example, have gone down the road where they're going to um, develop the first consumption room. Now, we don't have, our planning is very clear, it's a supervised injection facility, but it's the start of a process, and I'm not suggesting that Merchant's Key will have a consumption room, absolutely not, but we may have to look in our drugs strategy at consumption rooms at some time in the future. Do you believe in decriminalisation of drugs? And if so, why? We do. We do. On what basis? On the basis that uh, addiction, chronic addiction, is a health issue. It's not a criminal issue. I mean, you look at our people, you know, that visit our centre, they are very, very sick. Um, you know, I, I, I think, for example, I, I mentioned the 409 um, overdoses, uh, and I look at... You know, we've had a really difficult year in terms of road traffic accidents. Tragic, and you know, and I, and I can think of certain instances over the summer where you know you could feel that the, the nation was in pain. Like people were absolutely broken-hearted at the loss of life. And I look at the loss of life through addiction, and I sometimes wonder: is that life less valued? You know, because we don't have that national outcry or that pain or that deep sorrow that we have for 
a young person who dies in, a, in, in other circumstances. So I, I think they, the, the culture has been to criminalise drug users and because we criminalise them, we value their lives less. And I, 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 I don't want to upset anybody or, or point the finger at anybody, but that's the reality. We have valued the lives of, of chronically addicted people less. Evie Mullins from Merchants Key Ireland uh, speaking to me earlier this week. Well, I'm joined now to discuss and to debate this issue in studio by youth worker Eddie Darcy and Bobby Smith, who's a child psychiatrist and addiction specialist. You're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, Bobby, the, one of the main reasons we are talking about this is because we know the Citizens' Assembly is due to report possibly in 10 days' time and the mood music is that they will be recommending a liberalisation of our drugs laws, the decriminalisation of the possession of drugs for um, personal use. Do you think that is the right thing to do? Um, well, I suppose it's important to clarify what, what the words mean. Decriminalisation, as used in locations like Portugal, uh, to be clear, drug use is prohibited in Portugal. It is decriminalised. Uh, however, if you're caught using drugs by a policeman in Portugal, your drugs will be taken off you. Your details will be taken down and you'll be required to attend a dissuasion commission. So drug use is not prohi is, is prohibited in decriminalisation models. So it's not clear to me what Eddie actually meant there when he said decriminalisation because lots of people in Ireland who actually support legalisation refer to it as decriminalisation. Decriminalisation... You know, is, is It's about not making people criminals if they're caught in possession yeah. of drugs. It doesn't legalise you taking those drugs in the first instance or the selling of those drugs or anything like that. Yeah. And is that your fear? Is that your fear, Bobby, that this is sort of the thin edge of the wedge if we decriminalise it, that that's where we're heading? Um, no, not necessarily at all. Uh, it's just a different model. Um, it's a different sanction that society could choose to impose. So I can't drive my car without my seatbelt on me, but I won't get a criminal conviction if I'm found doing so. But I'm not allowed to do it. Uh, and I will face a sanction if, if I'm doing it. So that's an example of a decriminalised behaviour. And we could move drugs into that category. And the actual government plan at the moment, anyway, is to move in that direction, where someone would be, uh, in the first instance, if found by a Garda to be in possession of drugs for personal use, they will be directed towards but a health professional for an assessment. Do you feel that this is a path towards the liberalisation, the legalisation of drug use? I think for some it is, but it doesn't have to be. And who's those some? that you talk about? Well, people, well, Eddie wants drugs legalised or he wants cannabis legalised and there's many people out there who do want drugs legalised and certainly, you know, some of those who are, uh, are driving the legalisation agenda have been hiding behind a flag, uh, you know, that says decriminalisation on it when it's not ever what they really wanted. It, it's been their goal to... Uh, to, to get drugs, certainly like cannabis, legalised. Unfortunately, a lot of those people have actually come out now in the last year or two and been more honest and said that they do want drugs legalised, but they still use the word decriminalisation regularly. OK, so, Eddie, is it a bit of a Trojan horse here? We talk about the decriminalisation of drugs in Ireland, but actually people like you want to push this much further. Yes. You're looking for the legalisation yeah, well, of drugs. Well, we prefer to use maybe, and again, I don't want to get caught up in terms, the regulation of the sale of illegal, of illegal drugs. So there's a couple of things that we, we need to consider. One... You know, already in Ireland, we have a system where people can get an adult caution to cut drugs, and people see that as absolutely nothing. You know, so the vast majority of people who smoke cannabis or weed on a regular basis don't really consider there's going to be any legal, criminal 
consequences anyway. However, because a guard, if they catch you with they're, they're, cannabis they're, on you, they can give you a caution. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, you know, people's, the only people who may be concerned about that are people who may say, well, if I do get a conviction, it could harm my job or could affect my job or could affect my ability to get a visa to travel somewhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're saying that we fully recognise, I mean, I'm a huge worker for 40 years. I've worked in West Dublin for 30 years. I've worked in the southwest inner city for the, for the last eight years. I fully recognise the damage and harm that drugs cause to individuals, their families and the community. But I think criminalising people who use drugs and forcing other people who want to use drugs to purchase from criminal gangs just further damages people and communities. And we've created this monster here in Ireland because we criminalise drugs, which are the drug gangs, who you know, cause havoc and chaos in, in certain communities. There are families all over Ireland today who owe money to these gangs in every little village in Ireland, in every little rural area. They owe money to these gangs and they live in fear because of that. These gangs have become so powerful they can move hundreds of euros worth, hundreds of millions of euros worth of drugs around the place. And we've, to some extent, created that. We also have now created... So, so what exactly, just to be clear, um, Eddie, what exactly does this look like? You're saying if we... Well, you say um, the regulation of yes. drugs, I say the okay. legalisation of drugs, whatever okay. the terminology is, okay. it basically means okay. that you can buy drugs legally okay. in the country. There are two possible, two possible things we're talking about. One is where the purchaser of certain drugs would not face a criminal sanction. Or, in fact, most people would interpret, as Bobby correctly says, as not facing any sanction, because that is what most people mean when they say decrim. The second one would be where, in fact, you could purchase drugs legally. And is that what you're advocating? Well, because I have a moral and ethical difficulty with an idea that we might agree that people could, could, use their, cause you could purchase and use drugs if that was their choice and not face criminal, criminal consequences. But we're saying to them, but you have to purchase them from a criminal gang. And as re- in, in the last month, the UN High Commission on, on Human Rights has come out very, very strongly and said they're advocating for the responsible regulation of the sale of illegal drugs to eradicate criminalisation, violence within certain communities. OK, I want to put that back to you, Bobby, that there's something, I suppose, a little bit unsavoury or unethical with telling somebody you can now, let's say, smoke weed or take cocaine or whatever it is legally, you will not get a criminal conviction, sorry, if you're found in possession of it, but you're still going to have to go and buy it from your criminal gang. Um, I suppose, again, I, I come with this as a doctor, Kira, yeah. and I'm, I'm just taking a purely health perspective and I'm looking at the various policy options that are on the table from a, a, a regulatory legislative perspective and seeing which of those will reduce... Uh, will keep the number of people with addiction to a minimum, will keep the number of people in hospital as a result of drug use to a minimum. And uh, if we provide sort of regulated sale of drugs, we'll get more people using drugs, so we'll get more addiction, we'll get more people in hospital. Uh, so I, as a doctor, I, I can't ethically support a model that will, that will do so. I'm less obsessed by the criminal gangs. I, I view them as here to, here to stay. They're not, for me as a doctor, a priority. That would involve, I think, a criminal-led approach if, if that was your priority. Um, and... You know, the, the, like even in legal locations like Canada and the legal states in the United States where they've legalized cannabis, they have huge and ongoing problems with criminal gangs. They retain about 50% of the market because they will always undercut any legal regulated seller of drugs. Okay, so... And the youngest, poorest and most addicted will go to the, to the black market dealer in that location because they sell cheaper than your front street store. Okay, so what Bobby's saying is it'll actually increase drug use and it won't eradicate the criminal gangs. The critical critical question really is that if we make drugs legally available in Ireland, 
will everybody in Ireland suddenly begin to use drugs? And there is no evidence of that. I mean, cigarettes are freely, well, not freely available, but they are legally available to anybody over a certain age in Ireland. In fact, they're legally available to probably anybody over age 15. You know, they can go out and purchase them. But yet, because of good health promotion, because of sensible decisions taken by many young people, the vast majority of young people don't smoke cigarettes. We have an increasing numbers of young people who choose not to use alcohol, even though they could have access to alcohol quite easily in Ireland. So not everybody is going to make a decision. I want to use illegal drugs. So, all I, all so would I, you deny it will lead to any increase? No, in I'm not saying drugs. that because the evidence in some cases is you might get a decrease in the under, in the under 20s if, it, if it's the regulated market is well controlled. You will probably get maybe a 10% increase in the 20 to 30 age group. But if you look at the drug use in Ireland already, we're already one of the per head of capita, we're one of the highest users of cocaine in the whole world. So we have, I mean, we don't have millions of, we have less than 5 million people here. We probably have. Two million people in, in an age category who might use drugs, but yet we're importing in three or four hundred million euros worth of drugs every year, and they're being used here. So the, the drug using population here is, you know, virtually everybody who's using drugs is probably using them already. You know? uh, do you agree with that, Bobby? No, I There's think no if, evidence that it would increase drug um, use here. Well, I think the, the evidence from the yeah. states where they have. Uh, provided regulated access to drugs is that use has increased and it's increased across all age ranges. And I think that's sort of common sense. Um, if people are willing to use drugs, you know, with the current sort of model where they don't really know what they're getting, they're buying off of dealers. It, it makes sense that more people will be willing to buy more drugs if they believe they can trust uh, whoever's selling it to them. And that's the evidence from the States and that's the evidence from Canada. Uh, what do you say, Daddy, to the concerns that have also been expressed by the Gardaí who say, you know, we need to look at the whole of society impact of this and their concern is that actually open drug use in this country will absolutely surge from decriminalisation and surge even yeah. higher if you had this regularisation of drug yeah. use? There isn't a single village in Ireland at the moment where people can't make a quick phone call and get whatever cocaine they need that night in the pub. Yeah, or but cannabis. I know so, he's denying that. What they're saying is okay. it would get worse. Okay, get worse by meaning what? You know, in in, the, in terms of more people using. Yeah, because okay. I think what Michael O'Sullivan, the former yeah. assistant commissioner, had said was actually the, the fear of the guards, the fear yeah. of the courts. I, that that yeah, is actually, yeah. you know, it has kept, it for, has been a deterrent yeah, yeah. for young people in terms of experimenting with drugs. Very few young people who use drugs would consider that as a deterrent. You know, but, I remember but, we have... Uh, we have what's important is the people who yeah. don't use drugs, yeah. they do consider it well, a deterrent. Yeah. Um, but, obviously, you know, that's like, a bit like sort of saying people who drink and drive don't view but, the drink drive but, laws but Bobby, as a deterrent. But Bobby, you know, why has why has there been such a large drop in the number of young people in the last 20, 30 years smoking cigarettes? That's because young people are making intelligent health-led decisions. And I don't see any health promotion programmes out there, you know, providing young people with really good information that would help them reduce their use of weed. I, I don't want, to see, would, no, I don't want to see young people using weed. I don't want to see young yeah. people using cocaine. We'd All I'm saying is I'm also conscious of the maybe the 20,000 young men that have been in prison in the last 15 years because of their drug use, whose li lives are permanently ruined. They can't get guard vetted, they can't 20, travel. 20,000 people are not in prison because of per drug no, use for personal use. They're in prison no, because of the... Of they're, the they're, in, uh, they're often in prison because of their, of illegal, their, their illegal drug use means they've run up debts, which gets them involved in the drug gangs, gets them involved in shoplifting. Alcohol is a huge driver of imprisonment it, it, as well. And how, how, I suppose, so. Eddie, would um, decriminalisation or the regularisation of drugs 
impact that? Well, hopefully it would remove the, the numbers of young people being sucked into drug gangs at the moment because they're the runners and they're the holers and they're the sellers. Now, dr- gangs will still exist after that, but there will not be the same need to, to suck and attract young people in. So the working class communities right. that I've worked in, the biggest single employer in many of those cases is often the local drug gang. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that uh, discussion there for now. My thanks to uh, Eddie Darcy and to Bobby Smith for coming into us. We will be returning to this topic again in the coming weeks. Next, we get an update on the prosecution case, which opened really officially today in the Ashling Murphy trial. Do stay with us. accused of the murder of schoolteacher Ashling Murphy confessed his involvement to Gardaí two days later the Central Criminal Court has heard. 33-year-old Joseph Pushka has pleaded not guilty to the murder. Well, earlier our courts correspondent Deborah Naylor told me about the prosecution case against the accused. Well, opening the case today, the prosecution said that on the day of the alleged murder on January 12th last year that um, Yosef Pushka, the defendant in this case, that he was seen on CCTV footage cycling, at times, um, they said, aimlessly meandering around Tullamore Town and that on two occasions that he was seen in close proximity to two other women. And we heard that 23-year-old Ashley Murphy, she'd been working as a national school teacher uh, in Duro National School, that she left that work that day. She went for a run and she was killed at around 3.30 in the afternoon along a stretch of the Grand Canal. We heard that... Yosef Pushka would be alleged his bike was found at the scene where her body was found. And prosecution counsel Anne-Marie Lawler said that cuts and scratches that were later found um, on Mr Pushka's body, that these were consistent with him leaving the scene at the canal in dense overgrowth. And we heard today that there was no connection whatsoever uh, between Ashley Murphy and the accused in this case. And um, Ms Lawler said the fact that um, Ms Murphy, that she had suffered 11 stab wounds to the right of her neck. She said that meant that there was no other conceivable inference to draw in this case, but there, there had clearly been an intention to murder her. I mean, the prosecution put forward today quite a lot of detail when they were outlining what their evidence was going to be. What else did they have to say? Well, it will be the prosecution case that uh, Yosef Pushka made an admission to the murder. And we heard today that... Um, it would be alleged that he fled the scene in Tullamore um, after the killing of Ashley Murphy and that he would be seen on CCTV entering his father's home in Dublin in the early hours of the following morning, that subsequently he ended up in St James's Hospital um, alleging that he had been the victim of a stabbing and it was while he was at St James's Hospital that he allegedly made an admission to Gardaí who were investigating the murder of Ashley Murphy and as part of that confession he told them, I did it. Uh, we heard today, I'm murdered. I am the murderer. Now, um, Anne-Marie Lawler, prosecuting barrister, said that he said he didn't do it intentionally. He said that he felt guilty. He said he, he was sorry. Um, and he said, she said today that he had a level of detail about what had happened to Ashleen Murphy uh, that nobody else knew at this time. And she called this uh, so-called confession. She said that this was hugely significant evidence in the case that the jury would hear about. Speaking of the jury, um, Justice Hunt did address them today. Um, 
How did he instruct the jury to approach this trial that is going to generate quite a lot of media coverage, I would imagine? He did, and at the outset, um, it was mentioned by both the prosecution and the judge today that um, already this is a case that has generated a lot of publicity. Yosef Pushka has pleaded not guilty to murder, and, and at the outset today, he reminded the jury that he has a presumption of innocence, as all defendants do in the trial, and he asked them um, to, you know, to, to bring their common sense to bear in the case and to use their own wisdom and their own knowledge. And he said... Um, the prosecution said that, you know, in the case where a young woman had died violently, it may be understandable if there was a certain amount of revulsion. Uh, but Ms Lawler told the jury that they must approach this case in a cold, clinical um, manner and, and not bring any kind of opinion into it, decide the case on the evidence heard in court um, and not to discuss this case with anyone. All right, Deborah Naylor, and you will be following this case in close detail for Virgin Media News. Thank you for bringing us that update. Well, that's it from us on The Tonight Show this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast and you can also find us on Instagram and on TikTok, Tonight VMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night and do take care. <laughs>